of James. Pretty strong start to the year, I think, uh, for those of you who know the book. And uh, today we're going to be spending some time looking at the book or kind of getting a feel for what this book is going to be doing to us and uh, that we're kind of prepared for what God wants to do through this book, I believe, over the next few weeks as we go through it. And also we want to uh, look at answering the question of who was James? Who was this guy James? We're going to look, we don't know much about him, but we're going to look at some of the things that we do know and some things in his life. And uh, before we dive in though, let's just give this time in the word over to God in prayer. Father, we thank you as always for your word that we can look, we can hold in our hands, that we can examine and, and dig into together. I pray, Father, that you would open all of our hearts, that we would be ready to receive what you want to say to us, and that no one here, Father, that none of us would leave not having some kind of uh, word or encouragement or challenge uh, that we might need in our lives right now. Uh, before we leave today, that you would speak into our hearts, and that, Father, that you, me personally, you would open my heart, that I would only speak your truth out of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, some of you, as I said, might be familiar with the book of James. Uh, maybe you've read through it. Maybe you've heard of it or heard sermons uh, of that of people going through the book of James, or maybe you haven't, maybe this is completely new, well then you come at the right time, because the next few weeks is for you as well, uh, we're going to be going through James, and, uh, but I want to kind of just give you guys a feel for what we're going to be diving into, because I do think there needs to be a little preparation when we get into this book. It's a very interesting and particular book in the New Testament, and can be a challenging one. So some of the things that we find in this book, there's a lot of famous verses in this very short, only five chapters, uh, but some of the things that it tells us is that uh, James tells us to count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. That is a challenging verse to read, and that's actually what we're going to be looking at next week, so you can get excited about that. Pray for me. Uh, <laughs> so that's going to be an interesting one. And he says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. Very commanding, very authoritative in the way that he goes about this book. He says, faith without works is dead, which is the, one of the most, I think, uh, famous or prominent verses found in the book of James. And that's where we get our title for our series, Living Faith. So as we go through James, we want to have living faith and we want to look at what he kind of leads us and guides us in so that we won't have dead faith but living faith. And that's going to be our key focus throughout the series. And another thing he tells us is to submit yourself then to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. All of these are, if you didn't notice, and most of the verses have a commanding nature. It's a powerful book filled with commands about how we can live out our walk with Christ, live out our walk as Christians today. And so over the next weeks, as we go deep into this uh, kind of momentous, powerful book that is the Word of God, so we're, gonna look at, we're looking at James today, but I always want to emphasize, James wrote this, but it was, this is the Word of God. This is the truth of God that we're looking at. 
And uh, I believe that as we go through this book, every one of us is going to be challenged by something, challenged in our Christian walk. James goes for the kill in this very short book. He leaves nothing out. All aspects of the Christian walk are in one way or another addressed. It's a book that forces us to stop and to examine ourselves, to look at our own hearts and ask ourselves some hard questions about how we're living out our lives, and to hold ourselves to a higher standard of righteousness that James lays out for us. But I want to do this kind of prep going into the book because I don't want anybody to feel dismayed, to feel down about uh, some of the more challenging aspects of this book. Because number one, we're not, no one in here is alone. We're all together. We're all going to be going through this book, through this journey of looking at this hard text together. And something I want to encourage you with is that there is nobody except Jesus, that has ever lived that was either, if they were a Christian for a day or a Christian for a hundred years, that could read through the book of James and not feel challenged and not feel like there are still things that I need to work on. There are areas that I haven't mastered yet. Nobody can say, yep, thanks James, but I'm good. I've nailed it. There's nothing in here for me. I've learned it all. Nobody can say that. And though it can feel a little disheartening to think about that, to see where we fall short of where we'd like to think that we are, sometimes we have a different understanding of where we stand than where we actually stand. And that's what is so great about the book of James. Because, And he even uses the analogy of a mirror in the book. But it's a mirror that we can hold up to our face and see ourselves in a true reflection of where we actually are, of the things that we really do need to work on. And that's, for me, encouraging. That's a good thing to be in our walk with God. Because though it can be disheartening to see these places we need to work, at the end result, we always end with grace. We always end at the point of grace where we fall short, but Christ is enough. Where we work to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul says in Philippians, that we want to do our best. We want to be our best for God because of his great love for us. But when we fall short, grace is there to receive us. Grace is there to lift us back up, to hold us up. And grace and love is what draws us ultimately ever closer to God as we walk through this journey. This journey, We have a perfect Savior, so we don't have to be perfect. And I just want to, again, laying the groundwork for what we're going to be diving into in this book, because it will challenge you. I, in, in reading this to study for, this, uh, for the, this series, I can tell you, I had a few times I had to just stop and be like, man... I still struggle. I still struggle with things. Because he gets it down into the, the way we think about things. Every aspect of what we do matters. And so we want to live righteous and try to push ourselves forward. But remember that where you end, grace begins always. And so I hope that you're getting as excited about this book as I am. 
You look really excited from up here. I'm excited. And again, I know it's going to be a challenging book. It's going to be one that confronts us on some things in our hearts. But it's a demonstration of God's great, passionate, perfect love for us. This is a way that he woos us. This is a way that he loves us, a way that he cares for us. A verse that we might want to kind of push aside sometimes is Hebrews 12, uh, 5b through 6. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son or as his children. That goes for the daughters too. That feeling of seeing the spots on your own heart that need attention, that need work, is not meant to discourage us. It's meant to edify us. It's meant to lift us up because it's a clear demonstration of a father's love for his children. That's good news today. That's good news. So when we go through this book, when we're challenged, and in every area, Anytime we're in scripture, anytime we're just challenged in our heart, in our day-to-day life, where we feel we fall short, we can be encouraged that God is always wooing us in that. He's saying, hey, come this way. Lead, let me lead you towards righteousness. His discipline is always loving. And when I say discipline, I'm really talking about these kind of things in our heart where we're like, mm, that wasn't, I, maybe I shouldn't have lied to that guy or Maybe I shouldn't have t- taken that or, you know, maybe I shouldn't have had so much anger in my heart to that guy who just cut me off in traffic. Maybe he's having a rough day. Who knows? Maybe I should keep a check on my heart. Those are a way that God disciplines us and guides us. And James is going to be a great book for kind of creating an atmosphere for that to happen. So all that to kind of prepare us a little bit for the spiritual and emotional side of the book of James, myself included, and I hope that as we dive into this book in the next few weeks that our hearts are really open to be transformed, to be conformed to his ways, his word, his righteousness, not our own. And our our text for today is going to be James 1.1. We're going to really be diving in deep with one verse. James, a servant of God, And of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. One of the shorter greetings in the New Testament. And a little bit of background on this letter. This was written in the 40s. That's not like any 18 or 17, the 40s, 0040s. And uh, we don't know exactly when, but definitely 40s, probably even early 40s. So uh, very early on in the church. Uh, making it uh, one of, if not the, most would say the first letter written time-wise in the New Testament. Uh, So before any of Paul's letters or any of the other New Testament, it may not come first in our our Bibles, but it was the first letter to be written. And uh, this was... This was about the time, this letter would have been sent out probably about the time, if not a little bit after, the council that happened in Acts 15 where James and Peter kind of 
uh, make the decision about the Gentiles, that Gentiles can also be Christians without having to follow all of the Mosaic law, which is good news for us today. And uh, so he had a huge impact in that. And that's about when this was written. It says that it was written to the 12 tribes. Anytime we see 12 tribes, it's always a reference to the nation of Israel, uh, first and foremost, uh, as in the 12 tribes of Israel. And it was most likely written uh, primarily to the Jewish Christians at the time, this being because James was the head of the church in Jerusalem. So this letter probably went out first to the Jewish Christians at the time, but I believe quite clearly that this is also ties in with the Old Testament promise that all nations will be blessed through the nation of Israel, through the 12 tribes, meaning that today when we believe in Christ, when we are Christians, we are adopted into the family of God. We become God's people, meaning the 12 tribes also applies to you. So nobody can say that the book of James doesn't apply to them If you believe, if you're a Christian today, this book applies to you. It was written for us as Christians. And it says here that to the 12 tribes that were scattered, uh, this could also be kind of a connection with the past and how the 12 tribes were scattered from the time of the exile and still, even to this day, are scattered among all nations. But it's also referring to an actual scattering that was taking place at that time because right around the time this letter was written is where we start to see the Christians uh, being oppressed and being persecuted in Jerusalem. It started in Jerusalem, and so this would have been around that time, causing the Christians to hide in various places, to scatter. A lot of them left Jerusalem, and so I think it's also uh, referring to the actual scattering of the early church Christians. And this, again, this was one of the earliest uh, letters written, so... This would have been before Paul's conversion, so he was a part of that oppression at that time. And um, just to give us a feel for what's happening, the time frame, the book of James also has a few interesting literary traits that I would point out, especially as we're, when we are going through the text, or if you go home this week, as I would encourage you to do, and read through the book of James. Uh, so also prepare for this series. The book... Uh, doesn't follow the same patterns of a typical letter like we see with Paul's letters or uh, John's or uh, Peter's letters even. Uh, It goes kind of in a bit of a more scattered way. It doesn't seem to flow as nicely and it doesn't doesn't feel like he holds one thought very long and then he'll kind of come back to the thought later. I think that this was most likely because uh, the book follows more of the wisdom literature we see, like, for example, in Proverbs, where it's more of kind of wise sayings and ideas kind of pushed together. This was how uh, the rabbis would teach in the synagogues, in this kind of uh, to muse aloud style of, of talking. And really, this was just kind of sharing wise sayings, sharing insights that James had kind of from his heart. So it was kind of coming from his heart, and he just seems to have written down the way he most likely would have went in front of everybody and talked. So it is an interesting book in that sense. So here we have a bit of an understanding of what we're going to be getting into in the spiritual sense. We have a bit of an understanding of what's happening in the book. 
but we still want to focus the rest of our time on answering the question of who was James. Now, the New Testament has about five different James mentioned in the New Testament, and with this particular one, though, there seems there's no not much debate, a little debate, but it's quite clear which James this was. And uh, for all the things that James is known for in his life, there's one particular thing I think that will stick in our minds the most as what identifies him as a person, because James was the half brother of Jesus. And half-brother, just to clarify, that's because Jesus was the son of God, James was the son of Joseph, so they weren't, just to avoid any confusion. He was the half-brother of Jesus Christ. And this was also, I think, so well known at the time, that that's why James doesn't give an introduction, not James the son of, or James the leader of the church, he just says James, because of it was so clear Uh, to everybody who this would have been. And Jesus, if you didn't know, had four half-brothers and at least two half-sisters. We don't know. It could be more. They're never named. It just says sisters, plural. Could be two, could be five. I don't know. Big family was also quite common at that time. And James was most likely the oldest of Jesus' brothers and sisters. He's always listed first in any lists. He's most likely was right, the little brother of Jesus. And I want us to just take a moment and kind of try to imagine what that might have been like. To be the little brother of Jesus Christ. To grow up in the shadow of Jesus. Now, if you didn't know, uh, there are a few legends about Jesus' childhood, uh, legends like that he uh, you know, brought fellow you know, playmates back from the dead when they uh, injured themselves really badly, or that he would sometimes take dirt and uh, put it together and make birds that would become actual birds and fly around. These are fabrications. I don't know if anybody has heard any of those stories. Jesus didn't do any of those things. Those were quite uh, overwhelmingly uh, discredited. What we do know about Jesus, uh, from what we do know of his childhood in Luke uh, 2, 52, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus would, from all accounts from the outside, have appeared as any other child. He grew and learned just as we did. He had to grow in wisdom. He had to grow physically. And we know that his first sign, his first miracle, was at the wedding feast where he turned the water into wine. And that was when he was already about 30. So he seemed like any other kid, except one particular difference. Jesus did not ever, not even once, not even once when nobody was looking, He never, ever sinned, ever. He lived a perfect, holy life. Though he faced the same temptations that we do, he never, ever gave in to any temptations. Now, for those of you who have siblings, imagine how insanely annoying it would be to live with someone like that. I can't even wrap my brain around it. 
I was an older child, though, so you can ask my sister how it was to live with a perfect child. <laughs> That's for her. I think she might listen to this, so see what she says. <laughs> might get some, some mail. Jesus was perfect. He never sinned. To be the little brother of literally the perfect child, that would drive anybody a little bit crazy. When Joseph and Mary had to deal with James because he was doing something wrong, I cannot imagine that at least once or twice the saying, why can't you be like Jesus? Jesus doesn't do this. And that would have been a difficult comparison to have put on you. To be compared to perfection. Jesus never wasted food. He always finished his plate and was never asked to do it twice. He never talked back to his parents. He never rebelled, was, didn't have a rebellious phase where he hated his parents. Never had that. He was never bitter. He was always patient. That one really annoys me just a little bit extra. Like, you know, if you're really angry and then someone's just really calm and patient with you, you kind of want to just like smack them in the face. I can imagine there was some tension that built at times between Jesus and James. And I don't know what the age difference was, but either way, there was definitely moments of tension. Jesus never lied about anything. He was always truthful. That's also a difficult one. Because if you have siblings, there are times that they saw you doing something wrong. And you have to kind of do that, come on, don't tell mom, dad, don't cover, cover for me this time. That never worked with Jesus. All Mary had to do was be like, Jesus, what happened? That was it. Everybody was busted. I'm like, ah, don't ask Jesus. It would have been difficult. He was a perfect child. So you know he was the favorite child. I know parents say they don't have a favorite child. They didn't have Jesus as a child, so. And for 30 years, Jesus lived with them. He worked as a carpenter. We lived and grew with his family. But that was not enough. Ironically, living perfect wasn't enough to convince his family of who he really was when he started his ministry. It's no surprise that throughout Jesus' life and ministry, his family did not believe. He was just Jesus, their brother. His family had to choose. Either he was God, come down from heaven, as he said he was, or he was insane. What would you do if your big brother started saying that they were God? That someone you've known for over 30 years, grew up with, worked with, know so well, and all of a sudden started saying he was God? I think that it's a, a difficult thing for the family. And we know they didn't. We know what they chose. In Mark 3.21, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him for they said he is out of his mind so jesus was going around healing people 
And he was saying that he had come down from heaven. That he was the way, the truth, the life. They had to choose. Either he was God or he was nuts. And here we see clearly which one they've chosen. They decided he was crazy. And here we get a feel for their predicament. They are embarrassed. They're like, Jesus, you're embarrassing the family name. Come home. They intended to lock him away. Like, we're just going to put you back here, give you some tables to build. You're nuts, man. You're embarrassing the family. They're trying to have him committed. And it wasn't just his immediate family. It was also those who knew him well, that grew up with, that saw him grow up in his hometown. In Mark chapter 6, verse 3 through 4, isn't this the carpenter, talking about Jesus, isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. Jesus was Jesus to them. The kid from down the street. You know, some people probably went home, and I can just picture, you know, the wife coming to the husband, or the husband coming to the wife. Hey, you know that kid, Jesus? So, uh, guess who he thinks he is? God. And they all had a nice laugh. This was the situation. They could not accept his claims to be the Savior, to be the bread of life, the water of life. And this is the question every single person throughout history has had to wrestle with. That we have to wrestle with in our own lives. Who is Jesus? Because he is either some crazy figure from the past claiming to be God, or he is the Christ, the Savior of the world. And if he is, we'd be crazy not to follow him. We'd be crazy not to believe. There's only one of two options. He was either crazy or the Son of God. James is battling with this question. Being the second born, he also would have, again, had this deep-seated uh, rivalry and comparison that he would have been making with Jesus because that's just what happens with brothers and with all of us. He knew him, grew up with him, and he was blinded by, I would, I would say probably blinded a lot by this rivalry, this comparison. Who was he? How could he be God? And we are all in danger of being blinded by the truth, blinded to the truth. The truth about who Jesus really is. And I think that I want to kind of broaden this a bit because there's different ways that we can struggle with this. Maybe you're here today and you struggle with the idea of Jesus being God at all. He was just some guy that lived a long time ago. Maybe you're a Christian And you struggle to see who Jesus really is. You don't see him as complete savior of your life. You see him as maybe somebody you can look to sometimes. Or you see him just as as a piece of something. But you have to fill in the gaps. Or you have to work 
for your salvation. Not seeing him as complete savior, trusting him completely. And, and some of us are going to even be struggling with this, with different sins. And I would focus today on this idea of comparison, which I think is something that happens very often in churches where we compare ourselves with one another. We compare ourselves through dumb ideas of, of what we should be, of who's serving here or who knows the most about this or that or how we see each other's lives and covetousness with one another, wanting what others have. Comparing is so dumb. <laughs> we shouldn't compare ourselves to one another. We don't want to fall into that trap. We don't want to be blinded to the truth. Now we know that James didn't believe during the life of Jesus, as we know that none of his brothers or sisters, Jesus' brothers or sisters, were at the cross, only Mary, his mother. But church tradition tells us that James, after Jesus' death, was so deeply moved that he wept and vowed to fast until the end of his life basically to just never eat again until he died. He was moved. Something happened here. I think we see this kind of beginning of a transition where now he's not, uh, he isn't just shunning the idea away. Jesus isn't just crazy. He's wondering, what, did I miss something? Was he telling the truth? And he mourned at the loss of his brother. Clearly there was a close relationship between them. But then we read uh, in Paul's recounting of the appearances of Jesus after his death. So after he rose from the dead, he appeared to many, many people. And in First uh, Corinthians 15, verse 7, then he appeared to James then to all the apostles. James is mentioned by himself here. I think there's something interesting about this, that he personally, Jesus came and personally appeared to James. So Jesus, number one, rose from the dead. That's a big thing. Again, something that we have to come to terms with. Either it's true or nuts. It's either all true or none of it's true. Jesus personally appeared to James. What a meeting that must have been. I can't help as in my kind of carnal human nature, you know, think of how I would react as Jesus coming and standing before James. I mean, talk about the perfect I told you so moment. Uh, hello. I've come back from the dead. Clearly I was telling crazy. Jesus didn't do that. He's better than me. Jesus came to him out of love. I can just imagine this emotional moment revealing himself for in his true nature as God. And in this moment, we see that the belief, the faith, the conversion of James is completed, takes hold, and that changes everything in James. 
when we see Jesus as Lord, no longer in part or no longer as just some figure from the past, but as Lord, it changes everything in our lives. It changes everything about us. If we look on with the story of James, James rose to be, as I said, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Thousands and thousands of people. He made some of the biggest decisions that still affect us today about uh, the Gentiles, which is non-Jews, and our relationship with God. And We know that he went on to be married. His whole family also believed. Most relevant for us today, we know that he wrote the letter of James that we today can look at and read. So who was James in the end? He started off as the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus. But who was he in the end? James 1.1, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we know a little bit about James, what he probably might have experienced growing up, when we know how he saw Jesus for the 30 years that he knew him, and then when we see him call, when he says, I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, that has power. That has power and authority. We see that there was something that changed in him. He could have said, James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He could have said, Jesus, uh, James, the, the, the real half-brother of Jesus. I knew Jesus before it was cool to know Jesus. But he doesn't say that. He calls himself servant. And this in full and utter humility and submission to Jesus. This is his identity. This is who he identifies as, as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, as in Jesus is not just a man, but he is God. He is, a, he is the deity of God. He is Jesus. He is the Savior of the world, and he is Christ, the Messiah, the one promised to the world. And this is who he serves. And this servant, this word servant, is really bond servant, meaning slave. And, and the sense of, of a, a slave who's a, in, in slavery because of debt. He's indebted to Christ because of what Christ has done. Now he gets it. He's not just the carpenter he knew growing up. He's not just the brother. He is the Lord, the one who paid for his sins. James was radically changed and transformed through his faith in Jesus as Lord. And what really changed, number one, who Jesus was to him. That he was no longer his brother. He was no longer some crazy guy saying he was God. He was God. He was Lord of his life. So number one, what changed was who Jesus was to James. And the second thing was who he was to Jesus. 
He is no longer Jesus' brother. He's no longer a leader of the church. He's no longer his social standings. He's no longer anything. He sheds those off and calls himself servant of Christ. That's who he is to Jesus. James is an unlikely hero, I believe, for the kingdom of God. Seemingly pulled out of nothing. Someone who thought Jesus was nuts. Not really mentioned much in the Gospels. He was just a tradesman. But in his becoming a true servant of Christ, he has become a mighty tool that's impacted Christians for over 2,000 years and I believe is going to be impacting our lives as we dive into this series. And I'll put the question to you then of who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? Some guy from the past, some nut claiming to be God, Is he the one that you only turn to when you think you might need him, some sort of sidekick in your life? Or is he your Lord? Is he your center point, your rock, your foundation? Is he your everything? Your savior, your king of kings, the Lord of your life. We can't pick and choose. He's either Lord, the Christ, or he was crazy. It can, it's either all true or none of it's true. We can't pick and choose bits and pieces because if it's not all true, it all falls apart. And lastly, who are you? Are you your financial standing? Are you your education? Do you identify with what you've accomplished? Are you your family, where you come from, your nationality? Or are you a servant of Jesus Christ, indebted to him because of the price that he paid for you? We owe the debt of of sin, which is death, for our sins. And this was covered only by Jesus on the cross and defeated in his resurrection. Cannot pay our, the price on our own. And what greater love is there than this? This is why for me, I want to be a servant of Jesus Christ in all of my life, in all areas of my life. And uh, as the band comes back up to close us, I want to leave you guys with this to ponder. I encourage you to think on this throughout your week. When we think about who are we to Christ, do I identify as a servant of Jesus? And what areas of my life do I need to maybe work on that? Because as we see with James, I want to leave you with this, that when we submit ourselves to Christ and identify as a servant of Christ, there is no telling what God can do through you. There's no telling what God has planned to do through you when you submit yourself to him as a servant. 
So my advice is choose to serve Jesus and be willing and be ready for whatever God might have planned for you. Let's end our service in worship of him.